Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Cosmos Crusaders. So before we get into our episode this week and introduce our guest, you may notice that I am in a different location that has not been seen before by you guys. So this is actually my home in San Ramon in the Bay Area. I came back for the summer because I just finished my first year of graduate school um, in my PhD program at the University of Maryland. Um, so just talking a little bit about sort of how that went. Um, starting my PhD in astronomy was a lot of what I expected and some things which I didn't expect. Um, it was definitely a lot of learning experiences. And the one thing that really stood out to me about my experience in my first year was how important um, my cohort was to me and the group of people that were around me. Uh, I was really grateful to have such a really good group of friends that were able to help me get through situations in my first year that were difficult. Um, your first year of graduate school is a lot of stuff being juggled at one time, especially being a TA, um, starting with your graduate classes and starting with research at the same time, along with a lot of other stuff that I was doing in the department. And another thing that I did that I didn't expect to do was start this podcast, but now we're already on episode three and continuing on as we get into the future, um, we have some more really exciting guests lined up, which we will announce in the coming weeks. And yeah, so I guess just that was just a little bit of a recap of my first year. Um, I'm going to be here throughout the summer, um, except for our next episode, which will be a little bit different, but we'll announce that uh, soon in the coming days. So yeah, that was just a little bit about my first year uh, at UMD. Well, we're all very proud of you for finishing your first year, and I hope the rest goes by smoothly and quickly, and I know that you're going to continue to do great work, and yeah, before we um, go into our actual interview, um, we're going to talk a little bit about our guest, Kishale Day, um, a postdoc at MIT, and kind of talk about the parts of his interview that stood out the most to us. But um, Kishale was our first postdoc that we've had on Cosmos Crusaders. And it was honestly such a great time having him. I personally haven't been able to meet him before this. And Gokul always talks very highly of him. And he lived up to all of my <laughs> expectations. Um, Kishale is very intelligent. And I think that the way that he sort of explains his research through anecdotes and in terms that I can understand made it clear that he's a great mentor and will be a great professor as he continues on this journey throughout his research and as he pursues like more positions in academia. Um, Kishle talks a lot about what Koko mentioned about how community and your cohort is a really important part of grad school and how they help you through the adjustment period and how you can study and do all your classwork as well as work in the department with them. Um, and he also mentions that as an international student coming from doing his undergrad at the Indian, Indian Institute of Science, um, he had a big community of other international students as well as his advisor. Um, Monsi Kalasiwal, she is, was also Gokul's advisor at Caltech and they share the same Indian background and that helped him a lot 
throughout his adjustment period when he went to Caltech for grad school. Um, I don't know, Gok, if you have anything you want to add to that or talk about a different part of the interview. No, yeah, I think that sums it up really well. Um, he talks a lot about community and his culture um, coming from an Indian background. And I think it's cool that we're also dropping this episode at the end of AAPI month, which is uh, exactly on this Tuesday, May 31st. So um, yeah, there were a lot of really, really interesting parts of the interview, a lot of things that I learned about Kishile, um, about both his science and his personal career that um, were really helpful. And some things that I'll personally take away are the things that he said about how he sort of views mentoring students and the um, and sort of what he's learned over the years, because he's already mentored quite a few undergrad students, one of them being me during his time at Caltech. Um, Kishle started research from um, a very young age, right at the beginning of his undergrad, because um, he had the opportunity to do so at the Indian Institute of Science. And I could sort of just tell how he cultivated all of his research experiences through his undergrad and graduate um, career, and has sort of built a bit of a roadmap for himself on how to best mentor students. And I think that we definitely need more people like him in the field who have such a passion for mentoring the next generation of scientists because um, the field needs more people that sort of give an emphasis to that aspect of the job, in my opinion. Um, it's not just all research, it's also the impact that you have in influencing the next generation, which ultimately will provide better research for the community because the more scientists that we have that are able to be supported in healthy ways is just gonna be able to affect the way that they do their research in better ways. So yeah, that was one thing that I really took away from the interview. Um, but yeah, uh, so I think that's a bit of an introduction to this week's episode. And now we can get into our interview with Kishale. So we hope you guys enjoy it. We're very excited to have our first postdoc on the show. And it is extremely our pleasure to introduce doctor now, Dr. Kishale Day. So. Kishle got his bachelor's in physics from the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore in 2016. He graduated with a PhD in astrophysics from Caltech in 2021 with his thesis titled The Whisper and the Bang, Cosmic Fireworks in the Lives of Compact Binaries under the supervision of Professor Monty Kosiwal. At Caltech, he won the Milton and Francis Clauser Doctoral Prize, which according to the website is the thesis with greatest degree of originality, ingenuity, and potential for opening up new avenues of human thought and is with all of the Caltech graduate students in all fields. So this is a very big accomplishment. He is currently a NASA Einstein fellow at MIT. And he also recently won the best dissertation award at the high energy astrophysics division meeting in Pittsburgh in March. So he is a very accomplished scientist already in his young career. And uh, me and Kishle have a relationship through, he was actually my research mentor when I was at Caltech because um, my advisor was Professor Matsukasiwal and that was Kishle's PhD advisor as well. So Kishle is an amazing scientist and an amazing mentor and person. And we're extremely excited to have him on Cosmos Crusaders. And he's originally from Kolkata, India. So yeah, that was a brief introduction of the many accomplishments that Kishle has had in his career so far. So welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, and you, thank you for that very generous introduction. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I'm very excited for this episode because I want to learn more about Kishle 
not only from a scientific point of view, but also sort of from a personal point of view and sort of what drives him because in a sense, he is one of my role models in the field because I look at you and all you've accomplished and especially all the mentoring stuff and how good of a mentor you are. And I definitely want to get to that level one day. So we're going to start out with how we usually start out with in the show talking about your research. So I know that you were always working on a multitude of projects at Caltech, which encompassed a wide range, including instrumentation on your infrared surveys, studying faint supernova explosions, understanding stellar binaries, and much more. And I'm sure that you're still working on many of these areas at MIT. So the first question I wanted to ask you is something I've been wondering about for a while when it comes to your research. What are the highest level questions that you're trying to understand through your research that sort of ties all the projects that you're working on together, even in the lucid sense? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's yeah, that's a super interesting question. I could probably talk for hours about <laughs> what really motivates me, but I'll try to keep it short. Uh, uh, but yeah, so I think uh, uh, you already mentioned sort of the broad theme of my research, but, uh, but I think to put it, uh, you know, in a nutshell, the broad theme of my research are stars that are in binaries. So uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, our sun is a, is, is a normal star, but it was more or less born in isolation in the sense that we don't know of any, you know, companion to the sun that, you know, that another star that's orbiting the sun that's held together by the gravity of the sun. So it's an isolated star and it's not, well, it's isolated star, but it has planets around it and, and we live on one of those planets. Uh, but it turns out that uh, that's, not, uh, that's not the norm for a lot of stars. Uh, uh, most stars in the universe are actually born not in isolation, but they're born as part of families. These are stars that are, some of them are born in binaries, which means that there are two balls of gas that are uh, that are orbiting each other because of their mutual gravity. And some, uh, we, we think that many of these stars are actually born in systems that have more than two stars, you know, three stars, four stars, you know, we, we know of a lot of this phenomenon. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the, the reason why we see, see so much of diversity, in, in, even if you look around you, you know, the, the, there's so many elements in the periodic table, the carbon in your you know, skin, the iron in your blood, a lot of this diversity comes from the fact that uh, that many of these stars are born as binaries and they go through phenomena that normal isolated stars don't go through. So, uh, you know, if you took a star like the sun in isolation, if you told me what its mass was, told me uh, what its composition was, it's relatively straightforward to predict how the star would evolve over its life. You know, it starts burning hydrogen uh, into helium, which is what we think most stars do for most of their lives. And then as it goes, grows older and older, it starts burning you know, to progressively heavier and heavier elements like oxygen and carbon and the stuff that you see in the periodic table. So, uh, and by the end of its life, we know that the sun will actually end up as a dead remnant known as a white dwarf, which are these extremely uh, dense uh, regions of material, uh, material where you essentially have about half the mass of the sun compressed into something that's about the size of the earth. And most stars in the universe would end up like that. And it's relatively straightforward to predict how this would happen. Uh, the fun comes when you put two stars that are not in isolation, but are actually around something else. And uh, by around something else, uh, I mean in a situation where the, the, as the star goes through its, through its life, it, you, know, you, you can't ignore the effect of the companion in the sense that at some point, the star is going to start interacting with its companion as it uh, you know, uh, grows older and starts transferring mass to the companion. And when that happens, that's when the fun begins, because then you also have to take into account how far the companion is, what type of 
start the companion is? What is, you know, where is the companion in its life and so on? And, and a lot of the diversity in terms of the, the stuff that we see around us comes from the fact that most stars are actually born in violence. And uh, that's really the focus of my research. I try to uh, really uh, focus on uh, the phenomena that are actually somewhat the most poorly understood in, in the lives of these binaries, which are the brief uh, episodes of interaction between these stars, when, in the sense that for very brief uh, periods in the life of these stars, they, these two stars talk, start talking to each other. You know, one transfers mass, one star transfers mass from itself to the other companion and vice versa. And when all of this happens, that's when you start seeing a lot of the, uh, the explosive phenomena that we see in the sky. Things like, you know, supernovae, things like, you know, when two, these two stars merge, uh, if they end up merging at some point, they, they produce transient phenomena of the kinds that we can see definitely in nearby galaxies and even in our own galaxy. And that's really been the focus of my research, which is can we find uh, so an enough number of explosive events in the sky coming from these binary stars that we can actually en end up creating a roadmap to say that, hey, if you start with two stars that started off at the being so far apart and they started off with so-and-so mass, can I use these transient phenomena to understand, to essentially create a roadmap going from here is how you started this, and this is what it ended up as, and this is what it ended up producing over that entire uh, uh, period while uh, uh, while the stars were interacting with each other. So yeah, yes, and you know, in, in that process, I obviously uh, you know I, I try to develop the tools that are required to do that. I think you mentioned that I you know, I, I I've uh, uh, been involved with instrumentation. It turns out that a lot of these questions are kind of hard to answer without. Uh, you know, using new forms of instrumentation because some of these questions uh, require those kinds of efforts. And that's really been the sort of uh, motivation for me, which is that I want to answer these questions, but, you know, if you need new instrumentation to answer these questions, you know, I'm happy to, you know, help build those new instruments as well. So that, I, I, I really uh, enjoy that part of being in astronomy, which is that, you know, I, I, I get to sort of not only learn the science, but also, you know, really know where the uh, the data comes from, what kind of instruments the data comes from. And I think that's been quite an enriching experience. Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. A very, very good summary of the many things you do. Uh, one of those instruments is the Palomar Gattini survey, which you were an integral part of and uh, was a big part of my time at Caltech. So I guess if that wasn't implemented by you, then I feel like I would be in a very different place right now. So thank you for thank you for all your help with that as well. Um, no, thank you for doing such amazing work with, this, with, with the instrument as well. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, so now sort of transitioning to what you're working on specifically now, um, Professor Kostiwal mentioned to us on a Gattini call last year that you'll be transitioning to working on more compact object science in MIT. And your bio says that on the MIT website says that you're working on systematic searches for neutron stars and black holes in the galaxy now, which to me seems like a little bit of a transition from the stuff that you're doing at Caltech. So can you describe how you go about doing this and what are sort of the broader astrophysical implications of your work at MIT? Right, uh, yes, okay, yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about that. Yes, so I think, uh, right, so when, when I was at Caltech, as you know, as you know already, uh, I was working on a, a lot on nearby supernovae, faint supernovae, and uh, we 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 believe that a lot of these uh, uh, these explosions when they happen, so when you have two stars that are uh, next to each other and one of them goes boom, uh, it leaves behind uh, in a lot of cases uh, a remnant star, which is a dead star that's still floating around. You know, these are 
if, if the star is massive enough, it leaves behind uh, what, in, what we call either as a neutron star, which are these extremely uh, uh, magnetized stars that uh, have very small sizes, like on the order of the size of a city. And in the most exotic cases, they leave behind uh, things that we call black holes, which I think, you know, I think there's a, 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 there's a lot of excitement about black holes because we are, just don't understand them very well. Um, and uh, so, so that was the focus of my research back at Caltech. But then I think as, you know, as uh, it turns out that the, because of all of this new instrumentation that's coming along, especially in the infrared, we're really getting to this stage where we not only can you know, find these neutron stars and black holes being born in these spectacular explosions in other galaxies, but we can actually uh, hope to uh, find the remnants of these explosions floating around in our own galaxy. So, you know, the, a typical supernova, the kinds of things that we're studying, that happens of the order of, you know, once every hundred years, you know, in our, you know, in a galaxy like our own. So, you know, uh, which means that, you know, if you wanted to you know, do an in-depth study of, of supernova in our own galaxy, that we have to wait, you know, a few hundred years, but of course, you know, we don't live that long. So what that means is that we can actually, instead, hope to actually look at the remnants of these things, like when, let's say a supernova happened a thousand years ago. I did not observe the supernova, but the remnant of that supernova is still floating around in the Milky Way. And those are the kinds of things that you could hope to find with uh, things like infrared surveys, which has sort of been the focus of my work, which is that if you, uh, because it turns out that there is so much gas and dust along, you know, inside our own galaxy, it's, it, it gets uh, reasonably hard to find things in the, within our own Milky Way when you're looking in the optical bands, you know, the light that we see with our own eyes. You know, I think the, the clear, uh, rel relatively uh, simple analogy is that, you know, if you've ever looked at the sun during sunset, you know, it changes color, you know, it goes from being sort of yellowish in the middle of the day to being somewhat reddish near the uh, horizon. And that's because there is uh, gas and dust when you see the sun at the horizon. And the fact that it becomes reddish already tells you that the, the blue light that's coming from the sun gets preferentially absorbed by all of this foreground material, whereas the red light sort of just passes through and you see the red light. That's why it appears red. And the same thing we see everywhere else in the universe. If you try to look in our own galaxy, uh, uh, you see that all of the bluer light, the optical light that we see gets absorbed by the intervening gas and dust. But the, uh, the infrared light, that's uh, the, the long wavelength light, which is red, infrared light, actually makes it, uh, it's, it's a lot easier to see things in infrared light. And, and uh, so I think now that we are sort of entering this era where we can systematically look at the universe changing in the infrared, uh, we can now finally hope to actually find many of these remnants that are floating around in our own Milky Way. And most of them would actually also be in binaries. And we have a dead remnant of a star that's floating around uh, uh, another uh, uh, companion. Uh, and we can find these with infrared surveys. So that's the direction that my research uh, has headed towards, which is that uh, I, what I'm doing here at MIT is that uh, making, you know, developing new uh, methods as well as using ex existing surveys to, um, to find evidence of these uh, dead, uh, dead remnants of stars floating around other stars in the Milky Way using you know, a combination of the fact that you know, when you have, like I was saying, when you have a, uh, a companion uh, floating next to a star, it affects the companion. And, uh, and that's the kinds of effects that you can see in, in these uh, infrared surveys, when you look at take pictures of the sky again and again, as you create a movie of the sky in the infrared, you can see effects of the, uh, of the companion on these systems and we can uh, uh, hope to study them now with these uh, upcoming surveys. So that's broadly the, 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 the focus of my research now.
That's awesome. I mean, I never really understood why the sunset it turns different different colors but now it makes a little bit more sense um but on my questions are definitely going to be more base level just because of my lack of astrophysics understanding but could you explain a little bit more as to like why most stars are in binary systems like is one formed before and then the other one starts orbiting around that or are they kind of formed at the same time how does that work no, no, that's, that's an excellent question. In fact, uh, I would, uh, I think uh, it's reasonable to say that uh, in, in a lot of cases, it's an unanswered question. Like it's really at the forefront of research today. Um, and uh, so, I, so the, you know, the short answer to your question is both. Uh, uh, and uh, it really depends on, the, on, the, on where the star is when it was formed. But the idea is as follows, which is that I think at a, at a, at a, at a, at a basic level, uh, we, there is, we understand that actually most stars are actually formed together. So in the sense that when you have a binary star, there is uh, evidence that these two stars were actually born together. They have all, always existed together. And, and the reason for that is, is rather interesting. I'm trying to think of an analogy there, but I think the, uh, you know, one of my, one of my favorite movies is, is this, uh, I'm, you may have seen this called The Dark Knight, Batman. Uh, and, and there the Joker has a dialogue which says, uh, I think it some, goes something like, uh, uh, madness is like gravity, all you need is a little push. And, and, that's really, <laughs> and, and that's really, I think, at the base of um, uh, the reason why most stars are formed in binaries, which is the idea that uh, if you think of how stars form, right? So when the, the way stars form is that you have uh, a cloud of gas. So this is just gas that's floating around in space. Uh, because gas has mass, uh, it has its own gravity. And this gas, uh, when you put a bunch of gas together at one place, it's going to, their own gravity is going to pull things uh, together to become smaller and smaller. And at some point, it turns out that there is a critical mass scale that uh, uh, astronomers call it the Jeans mass or whatever. Uh, and, and the idea is that when uh, gas clumps together because of gravity, uh, there is a typical mass scale where uh, as the gas clumps, uh, it, it tends to break apart. So imagine you have a ball of gas and you're putting it together, together, together. And then at some point it becomes so dense that it that because of the, the, the way the uh, clouds form, instead of staying one single clump, it just breaks apart into two clumps. Uh, and that's, you can show that that happens because of the physics of it. So imagine, you know, uh, a gas clump that was going to collapse into one single star, very massive star, but instead of collapsing into one single massive star, it just broke apart and formed two, two clumps. And those two clumps will now individually go down and form their own stars. So because of the way star, because of the way gas clumps, uh, it's almost natural to expect that instead of uh, having a single star being formed from a gas cloud, you actually have multiple stars being formed together. In fact, we see this directly when you look at nearby star forming regions, which are you know, in our own galaxy. You always see these young baby stars forming in clumps of tens to hundreds of stars together. So there'll be you know, very small regions of space where you see hundreds of new, newborn stars that are you know, forming at the same time. And th that's one of the reasons why this happens. So when you have so many stars that form at the same time, many of them will, you know, will eventually end up spending all of their lives together. Uh, uh, and that's how most stars are actually formed in binaries. So our, in that sense, our sun is a relatively outlier in the sense that it doesn't have a binary companion because binarity or in a multiplicity or in the fact that the stars form in uh, multiple systems, that's almost a natural uh, feature of how stars form. 
so that's I think you know the the you know one of the reasons why stars are are, are found in binaries they're just born together. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned is actually a bit more interesting and perhaps uh, uh, I think uh, 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 a bit more interesting from the theoretical point of view as well, which is the idea that uh, you could have stars that are you know, essentially born in isolation, you know, and and you know it just happens to be formed from a gas cloud that decided not to fragment, or because of other reasons, maybe the companion did not stick around. Uh, uh, but if you have a, a region of space, so I was mentioning that. Uh, that we know of these uh, clusters of stars. So we know of that the fact that gas forms uh, uh, stars in clusters. If you put a star in a reasonably dense cluster, in the sense that you put, let's say, hundreds of stars in a region of space that are you know, that makes it extremely cramped in stars, uh, you can have situations where even if a star was born in isolation, you have just you know another random star happened to be passing nearby and it gets captured by the gravity of the star, and the two start orbiting each other. And there are you know, somewhat special regions in the universe where we think this probably happens the most. These are, again, these are certain types of clusters known as globular clusters, which the idea is that these are extremely small regions of space where you can have hundreds, thousands of stars cramped into one region of space, all sort of bound together by their own gravity. And then uh, you can have these random encounters where you know, some unfortunate star happened to be passing by another star and got you know, caught up in its gravity, and uh, there is evidence that this this uh, clearly happens in 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 the client kinds of clusters that we see in our own Milky Way. So yes, the, you know, the short answer to that is that yes, both happen. I think, uh, and uh, I think both are really at the forefront of research. How do you, how do we explain the multiplicity of stars using both of these uh, uh, combination combination of both of these uh, effects that are happening in the universe? That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like you explain things really well using analogies and, and things like that. So I can really absorb and imagine these little baby stars <laughs> um, being born at the same time. So that's really cool. Thank you. Um, you mentioned earlier that sometimes when these stars explode, they can create neutron stars, supernova and black holes, things like that. Um, but reading your research, you kind of refer to these events as cosmic fireworks which I thought was really interesting. So how did you coin that term? Oh, okay. I don't think I coined that term, to be honest, because I think the, okay, so I think it started maybe, I would, I, I think it was probably a few years ago when my advisor and me, we were, this, where we were having a debate about what what the title of my PhD thesis should be, <laughs> and and uh, so yeah, so I think you know I think a few years ago we were you know discussing ideas for what the focus of my research should be during my thesis, and you know we were and it was I think immediately obvious at that time that I was really interested in sort of creating roadmaps for stellar binaries. You know, like I was saying, you know, you start with two stars and then you let them evolve. Can what kind of observational phenomena can you can you use to you know, constrain what these things do and then you know we sort of realized that uh, that uh, that uh, you know pretty much all you know, all that we were doing were, were actually looking at these extremely explosive transient events in the lives of these stars uh, and of the kinds that we you know we can see as these brilliant flashes of light in in in, in the sky uh, so i think uh, I, I i think it was probably mansi that came up with this you know say in the she she would have probably been the one that you know injected this idea to say call it fireworks or something of that sort but i think uh, i think yeah i mean i'm pretty sure it, it started when we were sort of trying to debate what the title of my thesis should be but uh, but yes that that's that's how that sort of um, uh, uh, that's the genesis of that idea 
Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, whenever when I saw your, when I first saw your thesis, that was definitely the first thing that stood out to me. I thought that was a really cool name. Uh, thinking thinking of these events as fireworks, which is also the events that I also study, is a very cool way of of like looking at it. I think, and I think I'll try to remember that. Um, so yeah, so now getting a little bit into your background, um, I know that you were born in Kolkata, in which is a large city in northeast India. So could you shed a little light into what the experience was like growing up there and how you eventually came to find astronomy as your passion? Ah, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a fun question. Yes. Okay. Uh, right. So uh, like you said, uh, I was born in Kolkata. So Kolkata is, uh, is uh, one of the four big cities, one of the four biggest cities in India. Um, and it's on the so, okay, so I, I grew up in Kolkata uh, and I, I was born in Kolkata. My parents were from uh, uh, Kolkata, but it, I guess it, um, so, so my, my grandparents were actually from Bangladesh. So, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the history of our family. So, I, uh, so when I uh, grew up in Kolkata, I was you know, always this, I guess, since, since when I was pretty young, I was always the nerd in my, <laughs> in my cl class. And uh, I think the, the, the fascination for astronomy, I think, I, I don't quite remember where it started, but I was just always fascinated to look up and ask, you know, say, you know what's, what's going on up there. And, and you know, the, uh, I, I think when I was uh, very young, I, uh, because I was interested in, uh, you know, looking at the sky and you know, trying to look for, I think it, it, a lot of it started with just reading books about constellations and about histories of constellations. And I say, you know, constellations were really, you know, more of, you know, mythological things when you said that, you know, hey, there's a thing that looks like a man with an art bow or, you know, some animal in the sky. And I think I found those patterns really interesting. And I tried to, you know, recognize those patterns, even though the sky in Kolkata is not the greatest because it's a city and, you know, there's a ton of light pollution and stuff. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, so I think it, it went from being patterns to, Progressively, as I was, you know, growing older, uh, I, you know, as I learned more and more math and physics in school, I, you know, I that the 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 interest in patterns really uh, evolved into an interest in understanding the sort of the, the physics of it. You know, why is that star red or why is that star blue, or you know, why are those two stars together? And especially once you, uh, my, I think my parents were really uh, happy with that interest, and you know, they they gave me this telescope when I was. Um, you know, 10 years old or something like you know just you know, just stare at the sky <laughs> and i used to uh, take that telescope up to the, to the rooftop of our house and and uh, used to you know uh, i used to spend a lot of time just you know looking for you know red stars and you know, binary stars you can you know there are many uh, uh, naked eye binaries we can you can resolve in telescopes so i think that i think it, the interest went from you know interesting patterns which are just in the constellations to an interest in understanding you know, the very basic physics, you know, why is that star red and why is that star blue, uh, or, or you know, why are those two stars together in the sky? And of course, you know, when you have a, a reasonably a, a small telescope, you can start looking at you know things like you know planets. And I think I remember I was completely shocked when I first saw Saturn through a telescope. I was like, oh my god, I can actually see the rings of Saturn. Like that was like a, a, you know a completely uh, you know. Uh, a moment that I really realized that you know this, this stuff is real. Like it's not just pictures in, the, in on the internet. It's just uh, so I think that really fascinated me. The first time I saw you know uh, the moons of Jupiter in a telescope, the rings of Saturn, or I think the phases of Venus. Like you could actually you can so when you look at Venus in the sky, it changes phases like the moon. Like sometimes it's half Venus, sometimes it's crescent Venus, and so on. And I think that stuff like. Completely blew my mind when I was when I was uh, very young. So I think um, uh, so. Yeah. Uh, so eventually, I think when I got into um, when I, when I was graduating from uh, high school, 
I, 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 I realized that I had that interest in sort of math and physics at the time. And, uh, and, and, and I was like, you know, let me just go into undergrad in physics and you know, see what it looks like. I think even when I was you know, starting undergrad, I had this interest in astronomy, but it wasn't obvious to me that that might be sort of the, 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 the thing that I end up doing, because I think at that time I was also reasonably interested in chemistry for some time. I was like, ah, oh, the chemistry also seems very interesting. I was, I was actually, I really liked chemistry when even when I was high school, but um, so, yes. Yeah, so I think I, I sort of went in with this very broad interest in you know, physics, chemistry, math when I was an undergrad. And, you know, I, as you, you go into undergrad, um, uh, you know, you do in, in your first year or so, you do all kinds of different courses. And that's when I realized, okay, chemistry is not for me. Uh, so, <laughs> and then that, that's that I realized I'm more of a physics and math person. And then I think, uh, especially, you know, during the first couple of years of undergrad, I, I really started appreciating how you could use very simple undergrad physics and you know, undergrad, you know, sophomore, freshman year physics to explain a lot of the phenomena that we see in astronomy. And that really impressed me. The fact that, you know, you know these, these things are very far away and these things are extremely big you know, on scales that we can't even comprehend on, on Earth here. And yet you can use very simple physics to do that. And I think that, that, that um, I think that the beauty of that really struck me. And I was like, okay, I have to you know, try something, you know, doing some research in astronomy. And I think uh, I, I did a few uh, uh, internships uh, when I was an undergrad uh, doing research in astronomy at you know, nearby institutions in India. And yeah, I think that that's, that's really the story, which is, you know, it went from patterns to this fascination to like actually understanding the physics. I was like, okay, this is it. Like this, I love doing this thing. So, uh, and that's, that's where I am right now. That's such a nice story. I mean, when you were 10 years old, you were looking at binary stars and you're still doing that now. So <laughs> you really came full circle, but just like a little bit more um, deep diving into your undergrad experience. Um, how was going to an undergrad institution in India compared to like what you see when you mentored students at Caltech, for example? Yeah, okay. Um, right, so, okay, okay. I'm trying to uh, think of the differences. Okay, so, uh, okay, so I think the, the undergrad institution I went to in India, right, it's called the Institute of Science. And uh, I think Institute of Science is, is a very well-known institution because uh, I think it's, it's one of the premier research institutions in India, which is, you know, and uh, what that means is that uh, when, I, when I was doing my undergrad, I think similar to a lot of places here like you know, Caltech or MIT, there's a lot of exposure to sort of uh, uh, you know, state-of-the-art research. There are so many departments and so many excellent faculty who are doing uh, really forefront research. And I think uh, uh, that I, I find that part that part to be common between uh, in the, you know, institutions I've been at or in you know, the undergrads uh, I've worked with um, uh, 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 you know, here and as well as my experience back in uh, India, which is that uh, I think there was this one common thread that I think uh, that um, you you always have this exposure to uh, uh, ongoing research, which I think is great. And you know, as in, as an undergrad, I think I think uh, you know, especially uh, I I realized during my freshman and sophomore year that that uh, uh, that you know at, at that stage you don't quite understand all of the stuff, but you're trying you're really trying hard to 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 to, to make sure that uh, that you, you gradually learn. So uh, so so I, I so in back in India, I think I think uh, it was it was quite interesting to just you know to to. Uh, slowly learn things as you grow up. I think, uh, uh, especially in astronomy, you you uh, uh, not only do you learn have to learn physics, but you also have to sort of get your hands dirty with a lot of coding uh, in the sense that you have to understand how to deal with data because you know we're flooded in data in astronomy. So uh, so I think um, uh, growing up, uh, I think I, uh, I it was uh, uh, I I really found 
the 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 perfect combination of things to uh, to to really get uh, uh, involved in all of this and, and I, i'm really grateful for that and uh, i think you know looking at uh, i think based on my experience with undergrads over here i think uh, i think undergrads here like uh, smarter than than i uh, than what i was when i was <laughs> undergrad like i've worked with some really great undergrads and you know i think i've been really fortunate to uh, to to get to interact with some of them uh, here and uh, i think the, the in terms of the the differences i would i i think that i think there's a lot more um, independence here and scope here to sort of you know do whatever kind of research you like which i think is is really uh, uh, you know, a good thing about about the education system over here which is that you know you know if you are you know interested in something it doesn't matter you could, you could be doing an undergrad in physics and doing your project in biology and you know and vice versa and i think there are lots of opportunities here to do that and i think that the students here are also you know equally talented to sort of you know to uh, uh, try to, uh, uh, to to do a lot of different things at the same time so that that's been uh, my uh, experience yeah yeah that's really interesting to hear your point of view on that especially being indian but not growing up in india but hearing how like my parents talk about how their time was in college there it does seem to be very different than sort of like how the system is here. Um but yeah, so that's uh really interesting. Uh now getting into your move from India to Pasadena. Uh that's a very large one on many levels. So I was wondering how you could sort of talk about the move um and like how you dealt with being so far away from home. Um especially like your first couple of years of grad school at Caltech. Right, yes. Okay. <laughs> that was like I think it is I think going to grad school was uh I think in the very broad, it was not only like you know a complete new uh, experience academically, but also sort of you know, culturally and socially because you know I was this was the first time I was uh, you know, living outside for for a very long period of time uh, outside my uh, outside India. So uh, I think before before coming to Caltech, I did spend some time abroad. So when I was in undergrad, I spent a few months in Germany. So that I was doing an internship in Germany. So again, Germany is a very different country <laughs> than the US, and I but I think. the first time i actually visited the us was when i uh, was a prospective grad student uh, at caltech and that was my first ever trip to the us and i remember that being quite a you know surreal experience like you're transported to a different universe altogether <laughs> which is uh, quite fun i remember like uh, when i first landed at lax and you know there's this uh, other grad student who drove me from lax to pasadena i was like i was shocked with how fast the cars were driving on the, on the freeway <laughs> because you're not used to seeing that <laughs> in india at least uh but but yes yeah, so i so i knew i was you know i was, I was going into um, an interesting uh, territory over there both uh, you know academically and and culturally um but i i think the, the first year at caltech i i was really grateful because i think uh, even though it was quite a, a a big transition you know socially and culturally i think i had uh, an excellent you know cohort of students who were you know sort of in similar situations and some were of course you know, from here and and uh, i think we uh, i think they helped me navigate the the society and the culture here uh, without which you know i i wouldn't have you know sort of figured out how things work over here because i remember like some of my classmates you know will uh, we still talk about these stories about how naive i was about how things work over here like i had never been to a grocery store in the us and i remember when we were uh, when i was uh, uh, uh in in my first year of grad school we used to always you know the entire class used to used to drive together to the grocery store to buy, buy stuff and i think i really learned a lot you know, because of those uh, that having that cohort um uh but yes i think um so yes uh in terms of the experience 
uh, I think this it's a definitely a big social and cultural transition, and and I'm you know I'm, I'm grateful that a lot of my peers at Caltech sort of helped me navigate that transition. And uh, of course, you know, I think initially I, I would say that maybe the first couple of months it's all excitement and everything you know seems like you know you're in the new universe you can you know, do whatever you want and so on. But I think at, like you said, at, eventually at some point that thing also hits you that you're really far from home. Uh, so uh, I think uh, it takes uh, so to go from uh, uh, you know, to, to from LA, LA to back to my hometown. It's about a 23-hour flight, which is not you know, the 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 the, uh, the easiest to do, and also it's not uh, it's not cheap because you know, it's, it's a very long flight. So you know, going home, uh, I think eventually you realize that you know, going home is is not something that you would be able to do uh, very often. You know, I think uh, like you know, when when I was doing my undergrad, I was still living in a different city, so I was doing my undergrad in Bangalore compared to, uh, which is in South India, uh, uh, compared to where I live, which is in Kolkata. That's sort of a two hour flight away. But here, when you're transferred to you know, the other side of the planet, it's literally the other side of the planet. I think then it becomes obvious that that doesn't happen very often. So I think there were definitely uh, periods of time where, you know, I missed, I missed being at home in the sense that uh, I think uh, uh, as, as, you know, as, as many of you would know, the you know, India is very rich culturally, which means that uh, you know, there's lots of you know every week there's some festival going on, some this and that, and so on, go on, and and you you start missing those things, especially uh, 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 you know during the times when they're happening, because you know I would open Facebook or something, and, and I would see all my you know Kolkata friends, you know, enjoying some festival, some 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 something going on over here, and you know that you know I would obviously not be able to be a part of that. So that was uh, uh, so. I think I think that does uh, uh, hit you at, at times, especially early on, because you really miss that. But then I think um, again, uh, because I had I think an, an amazing set of classmates at Caltech, I, I I tried to import some of those experiences <laughs> over here. Like I would pull them with me, like let hey let's go to this place which is fifty miles away, but they're doing this festival that I really want to be a part of. So a lot of because there is you know such a big uh, you know, the presence of you know. Uh, Indians uh, in the US and even in the LA area, like you could probably find within a 50 mile radius some place that's actually doing the festival that you're interested in. I used to pull my classmates to go along with me, and 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 that, I think that helped uh, uh, navigate some of those uh, 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 you know, some of those you know feelings that you get of missing out and so on. But um, uh, yes, yeah, so so I, I think I think uh, that that really helped. And eventually, I think you know, uh, uh, as as years uh, as time progresses, you eventually uh, uh, get uh, used to you know this 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 thing of uh, you know being away. And I think uh, then I think you start cherishing the moments that you do spend with your family because you know I, I'm probably with my family. I would say maybe three weeks in a year, uh, and you know, and I think uh, uh, there's so much excitement that uh, that. Uh, that that you get, you know, when you're planning, even planning those trips, you know, when you're planning those trips, when you're sort of uh, you know, getting close to those trips, and you know, obviously while you're on those trips, and I think that I think it 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 makes you realize sort of the uh, I think it definitely makes you realize sort of the uh, the importance of you know being with family and you know the kinds of uh, uh, and and uh, how you should you know sort of make uh, every moment count when you're with them. So uh, I, I yeah. So I I think that that sort of summarizes my experience. That obviously this initial phase of you know this feeling of missing out, but eventually you uh, you know you you learn to navigate that and you really start appreciating and cherishing the moments that you do get with your family back home. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all of that. I think that's really good like almost advice, um, especially for any international students who are entering grad school for the first time. I think that 
um, obviously I have no idea how hard that experience is because I grew up here my entire life, but just hearing you talk about it, it seems like a really difficult transition, but I'm glad that you had people around you that really helped you make that. And it was like good for you. And um, you're able to succeed at Caltech for sure <laughs> immensely. Um, a question I wanted to ask you on sort of from on a personal level, because I went to Caltech for undergrad is how you feel about how graduate school was there as a student um because i have my experiences there as an undergrad which were definitely definitely very difficult um especially because i also played basketball but um i wouldn't trade it for anything because of um the experiences i had and all the research that was available to me um but i've heard very different things about being a graduate student about how life is like there so sort of how was that like i guess <laughs> yeah. oh yeah sure yes uh uh yeah i, I think uh so, so yes, I think I think when when you start, at least, so I, I can speak for the Caltech astronomy department because that's been primarily my you know my uh, exposure to Caltech, and I uh, it, it is true that so the, the grad program in Caltech astronomy is set up such that the first year you're going in, you're sort of supposed to do all of these courses, which is you know which teach you some of the most basic things about astronomy because you know many people come in with different backgrounds. So I had an undergrad in physics, you know, somewhere you know, someone else might have a different background. So it's 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 important to sort of you know you know keep that, uh, to, to have that common set of courses so that, you know, uh, everyone comes up to speed with the, at least the basics of astronomy in all the fields. And, uh, and those courses can be tough in the sense that it's, it's a lot of material to digest given, you know, in those first three quarters that, that we have at Caltech. So, um, uh, but, you know, I, I think having said that, that, you know, those, those courses do have a lot of material and, and can be quite grueling. But there again, I think the, your cohort is so important in all of that, because I think some of the, you know, even during my first year at Caltech, some of the, uh, the, the times when the, we, the, my class as a whole, we bonded together was during solving homeworks for those courses. Like we would spend nights at, in the department solving homeworks together and, and, you know, just enjoying that experience. And, you know, we would discuss, you know, the questions, how to solve questions, and all of that. So I think, even though the 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 the, uh, the first year of grad school can be somewhat intimidating because the course load is really heavy, uh, I think that also gives you the opportunity to both learn and sort of you know, uh, and 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 uh, you know bond with your with your classmates uh, at the same time. And I think that that was a really rewarding experience for me at that time. Uh, and I think you know going ahead once you go beyond first year. Uh, that's, you know, I think towards the end of first year is when uh, uh, most people start taking up small research projects. Um, and, and there, I think it, it, it's very important to, you know, sort of, you know, uh, to, to choose your advisor, right? Because I think your advisor, you know, they should, you and your advisor should be on the same page about, you know, how things are done, there's a working style and so on. So I think I was really lucky in that, I think, you know, Mansi is being, you know, so, uh, 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 so, uh, uh, such a great experience in the sense that you know I think we've always had such amazing conversations about you know you know science and sort of life and all of that and uh, and I think uh, uh, it's so uh, I would say that uh, that that you know a lot of the graduate experience at Caltech was you know both about uh, uh, being able to sort of navigate that first year which is and also you know make the most of it academically and enjoy it and also eventually in subsequent years choosing the the, the right advisor i think uh, it's, it's very important to to make sure that you, know, you and your advisor are, you know, are, 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 have, have, you know, are agreeable to to your working styles to your ideas and so on and i think i was really fortunate in that aspect 
That's so great to hear that you had like such a strong sense of community within your cohort. Um, but in regards to Monsi, Professor Kalsi Wall, how did like she end up becoming your advisor? Did you guys just know that you would work well together? And do you think that it kind of helped that she was also from India and she had the same experiences as you growing up? Right. Yes. Okay. That that's another funny story, actually, which is that. So when I uh, so when I was in undergrad, uh, I actually didn't do anything of the kind that I do right now. So when I was in undergrad, a lot of the the research projects that I had done were actually in this field called radio astronomy, which is uh, in it, it's different from sort of the conventional astronomy that we think of in the optical, in the sense that you use these gigantic dishes of that that just gather radio light rather than. Uh, 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 optical light. So radio light is the kind that you see in your, in your cell phones, uh, the, the kinds of uh, stuff that you uh, that your cell phones receive. Uh, but you're trying to detect this from astronomical sources rather than uh, in uh, satellites or anything. Uh, and um, and the techniques there are very different. So when I actually first uh, applied to Caltech for grad school, I wanted to do radio astronomy. <laughs> like that was my entire application was about radio astronomy. I I don't think I'd, I I don't think I'd interacted with Mansi at all before I went into grad school. So uh, so I think when I, it's only after I arrived at Caltech when uh, we had this. So at at Caltech we had this um, with this this some so, sort of seminar course that you take in your first year where all of the faculty give small presentations about their research. And you know, I went to a presentation that Mansi was uh, delivering and, and I was like, wow, okay, this is this sounds very interesting. Like, you know, this, this uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I, I, at that time I really wanted to do radio, but I was like, you know, it's my first year at Caltech. You know, if, if there's any time where I want to learn a field that's different from my expertise, then I should, you know, do it right now because you know, this is grad school and this is the best time to learn things. You have all the time you, you like to learn things. So I think, at, at that time, I was like, you know, let me try and do a small project and see what it's like uh, in, in a field that's completely alien to me. Like I knew nothing about optical infrared at the time, and and that's how I, you know, you know I, I saw Mansi's presentation. I was like, this is great. So I went to Mansi and I said, you know, can I do a, a research project with you? And so that's when you know, so we sort of started working together. We had this. You know, uh, uh, I started working on these individual events. So these are essentially individual flashes of light that were discovered at that time and started interpreting some of that data as part of that process, of course, you have to learn sort of all the tricks of the trade, how to analyze data, how do you interpret data, and how do you fit models to data and all of that. Uh, so uh, I think that that's how it started, which is that, you know, I just wanted to do something different from what I did in undergrad. And and Mansi was, uh, when I heard Mansi present, I was like, this is great. Like, this is really very different from what I am. And, and, and also, uh, 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 is, is at the forefront of what's happening in this field today, which was my time domain astronomy. Uh, so, uh, so it started with that, and and then I did a couple of small projects with Mansi before I decided that I I wanted to you know really you know, take that to the level of a thesis, uh, and that's that's how I got involved in, in in these bigger time domain surveys. So I initially started with small projects that were looking at individual events, but then you know now that uh, as we were deciding for the thesis, I was like you know now we can actually extend this to much bigger projects, things like the uh, the these time domain surveys that were running at Caltech. Initially, this Wiki Transient facility, which is the, this big optical survey that runs at uh, Palomar Observatory, and then uh, you know, take it to the next level and say, hey, I want to build my own time domain survey. So that ended up beginning, be, uh, becoming Palomar Bithynia, which is the uh, subject of my thesis. So, uh, so yes, I think that's how it started. And I think oh, during that process, I think there were definitely uh, uh, moments where you know, uh, the Mansi being from the, the same background as me, I think Mansi grew up in India. 
and you know we sort of uh, had that you know we uh, every now and then we would uh, you know share that common uh, thread in the sense that we would talk about you know experiences back in india you know nitigrities about indian culture and, and festivals and so on in fact i would think that maybe this is right so this is actually relates to the question that you asked earlier about this thing about fireworks um i think that maybe the genesis of that idea might be somewhere when when mansi and i were discussing about diwali so diwali is this festival back in india uh, where you know it's a festival of lights people like you know that like uh, doing fireworks and stuff and i think there was some you know some exchange of emails at that time where you know i think we were you know, we were just joking about sort of you know how we found this transient i think somewhere very close to diwali and you know like you know, here is a firework for the fireworks for diwali or whatever so i think that might have been the genesis of that idea i'm not sure this is uh, I, i remember us exchanging emails along those lines to say that hey we found the fireworks the fireworks during diwali or whatever so uh, so yes i think there were definitely um, you know a lot of uh, fun experience that we had because we uh, shared that uh, that common culture and uh, and i think even uh, further down the line i think there were you know times when i think uh, you know uh, you know during grad school you know, grad school is hard you know grad school is hard you know, uh, you know both academically and you know as you grow up you know there there will be situations in your life which will be you know personally difficult for you know for folks and i i definitely had went through some of those situations that were personally difficult for me and i think uh, in a lot of those cases yeah, uh, i think uh, mansi really understood uh, the you know depth of many of these situations so you know stuff that has to do with family and you know personal situations and so on because of that common background so i think uh, it was uh, i'm really grateful that you know that that uh, that i we had that common connection that i could actually explain something that was sort of somewhat specific to my cultural background and somewhat specific to how you know the the the, the you know, indian children grow up and and so on and 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 share that and you know someone would understand that and sort of uh, have solutions that are uh, or at least uh, you know have solutions advise you based on uh, having that common understanding so uh, so i think that was uh, extremely helpful uh, especially during the times when uh, you know you go through these uh, uh, more uh, difficult uh, times personally Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. Um, I also have a very similar experience with Professor Costello as my advisor. Um, even when I was going through some tough time personally, she really made things easy and was very understanding. And I definitely have done my best research ever up to this point with her. So uh, she's a great advisor, um, and hopefully we'll get her on the show soon. Uh, <laughs> so now, getting a little bit talking a little bit more about being an international student at Caltech, um, were there any barriers that you felt sort of because you were an international student there at at um, Caltech? Barriers, huh? Okay, so yeah, I, I um okay, so I I guess I can. Okay, so okay, I I think uh, as you would probably know this, I think there um. I think compared to other schools in the U.S., I would think Caltech has uh you know. Uh, the, the barriers would be somewhat uh, uh, less evident because there's such a huge international population at Caltech. Like I think that makes uh, uh, you know things uh, 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 so much easier in the sense that I remember when uh, I first uh, went to Caltech. Caltech has this international student organization or something of that sort. And I remember during the first month that I was at Caltech, like they would they had these events all the time because you know they really wanted to make. uh uh you know caltech welcoming for international students and there's a big a big population of international even grad, graduate students at caltech so i think i um, so that definitely helped 
uh, navigate some of those uh, uh, barriers in the sense that, uh, uh, so I was telling you about this, uh, this uh, these cultural differences, right? I remember at the, so when we were going to this international student orientation, like there would be sessions where they would be like, this is what it means when an American says, says this, and this is what it means when an American says that. And, and I didn't realize, like, I grew up watching a lot of American TV shows, but even at that time, I didn't realize that I didn't actually understand some of the, some of those phrases. So, so I think that, that definitely helps some remove uh, uh, some of those uh, barriers. But I think, um, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, so, so I, I can't think of any specific, you know, uh, you know, Caltech related things that were barriers as an international student, because I think a, a lot of, I think uh, uh, the team at Caltech really tried, tried, you know, did their best to sort of make this a welcoming experience for uh, uh, all uh, international uh, grad students. But I'm trying to think if there's any uh, individual uh, experiences. Uh, yeah, I guess, did it, were you, um, were you, um, uh, uh, did, did, did you want to know more about the no, the 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 in, the barriers as an international student at Caltech or like in general. In general, too. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, right. Um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, so uh, I think. Yeah, I guess I'm not too. Uh, can't think of any. Uh, 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 well, I I already mentioned you know, this thing about staying away from home and all that, but I think uh, uh, because of this a big presence of you know international students at Caltech, I can't, you know, I think overall the experience was very rewarding. Like even, you know, even though you were staying far from home, you know, and uh, as you, obviously, as you, as you go through the process, you, you learn more and more about how uh, American culture works and all of that. Yes. Well, that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, I'm obviously not an international student and I don't know how the population was at Caltech um, as I didn't attend there, but could you like compare your experiences at Caltech to how you're feeling at MIT right now? Um, are there any like similarities or differences that stand out in like respect to the academic culture as well as the social culture and th the way that they like treat you as an international student? I mean, Caltech did a lot of things to help, but is MIT the same way? Right. Yes. Yes. So this is, I, so I always, uh, uh, I used to, uh, I, when I was at Caltech, I used to uh, uh, really um, laugh a lot hearing about this weird feud that exists between Caltech and MIT about how undergrads <laughs> and these two institutions don't like each other. So I was, I was very uh, curious to know how that works, but then I realized it's only the undergrads. The, you know, once you, the graduate students and faculty don't care, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a very undergrad thing. <laughs> But I think I, I found that quite funny that there's this weird feud between these two institutions at two opposite coasts of, of the country. Uh, but yes, I think um, moving from uh, uh, Caltech to MIT, I think MIT is a bigger university. There are many more students over here. And uh, I think um, during my, uh, 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 my, my experience at Caltech, you know, with, with, the, with the smaller population, I think the thing that I really liked about Caltech is that in the astronomy department, it was just you know so small, yet so many things happening that uh, uh, that almost everyone knew everyone else, and you know you could say hi, you could go for you know lunch, coffee, whatever with, with anyone you like, and you could you know, just strike up a conversation because it was a small department and there's so many things going on. There's you know 
a lot of people to talk to and pretty much anything you want to talk about because you know, someone or the other is doing some cutting edge science somewhere i think it's 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 it, it was really uh, rewarding in that sense and i think you know moving to mit i think that's you know that experience has almost remained the same which is that i think mit the astrophysics group is also you know uh, there's so many things going on and because again it's a small department it's uh, uh, it's you know everyone knows everyone else and you can pretty much strike up a conversation about you know anything you want and i think that that's the common thread that i see between caltech and mit which is that i think the fact that these schools are you know, both of these departments are you know, relatively small uh, you you know you can you, you know pretty much everyone else and, and that that really helps uh, uh, having the sense of community and also sort of having all kinds of interesting discussions about science and so on um, uh, so I think I would, I guess uh, the thing that uh, I haven't experienced personally is how it is like to be a grad student at MIT because, you know, uh, I, I, I've been here as a postdoc and, you know, the experience is somewhat different in that. I think the thing that uh, is, is obviously not specific to MIT, but uh, is that, you know, I think your your community as a postdoc is different from your community as a grad student because, you know, as a grad student, you always come in, come in with this cohort of you know, people who are sort of at the same stage, they're all sort of in this stage where they're all figuring out, trying to, you know, what, what they want to do with research, what they want to do with life and so on. And as a postdoc, I guess, you know, you're, you, uh, uh, as, as a postdoc, you sort of, uh, you're, you, you're expected to have some level of independence in that, you know, you, you pretty much you know, know have, have a sense of what you want to do and you have, you know, you know the skills that you need to, to, to do that. Uh, so I think uh, postdoc life in general is nothing specific to MIT. Uh, is that you know you you are a bit more independent and which also means that there there isn't sort of a a, a common cohort that you sort of um, work with work with like like in grad school but I think uh, even in that aspect I think MIT is really welcoming has been really welcoming to uh, to postdocs I think uh, especially during the time that I came in so I started in MIT like in the middle of the pandemic I think this was you know, summer of 2021. So that's not the easiest time for to start at a new position when you're moving cross country and you know settling into a new place. But I think my uh, mentors at MIT have been incredibly helpful in sort of helping navigate that uh, uh, that experience because it, it can be hard. You know, you're sort of not only are you at a new place, you pretty much don't know anyone, and then you're isolated. So uh, so that can be pretty you know uh, grueling if you if you don't have the right set of people to mentor you. And I've I've really um, uh, I'm grateful for that experience and that uh, they think, uh, I think the, 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 the seniors at MIT really appreciate the fact that, you know, post, the incoming postdocs have, uh, have, um, have seen MIT in a very different way compared to what it was prior to the pandemic. And they've tried, they're trying really hard to sort of, uh, to, to make it still rewarding for new incoming postdocs, because, you know, this is, you know, being a postdoc is, I think, probably one of the most fun phases in, uh, in, in, in this academic trajectory, because, you know, you, you, you have the ideas, you want to, you know, do fun stuff, but you also want to be uh, in the right group of people who will sort of help you nurture those ideas and, you know, do amazing science with it eventually. Um, so, uh, so I think, uh, 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 so, so my experience has been that MIT has, has really uh, uh, done that part in trying to uh, make postdocs feel welcome and also sort of uh, develop this sense of community where you could you know pretty much go up to other postdocs and say hey why don't you try this why don't you try that and all of that so um, so yeah that that's been uh, my experience so far and I think all of this is because again uh, 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 in MIT is a, you know, the astronomy group is not very big so you know you, it's the many opportunities to pretty much you know, strike up a conversation with anyone. Uh, on any topic. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear um, about 
the differences and similarities between the two places. I can definitely tell you that there is a rivalry within the undergrads. When I went to when I went to MIT for my official visit for basketball, uh, some of the students there told me that told me not to go to Caltech because people there are lame, which, <laughs> which, well, coming out of Caltech, I don't agree with. So because I had a really good experience there with the people that I met there and the friends I've made. So, but yeah, a rivalry is definitely there on the undergrad point of view. Um, so it seems to me like you're getting so many things done all of the time um, because all the research projects you're doing, all the students that you mentor, um, and you're involved in so many different projects. So how would you take time for yourself outside of research? I know that you are an avid biker nowadays. Is that an interest, is that, an interest that you sort of recently found? Ah, yes, okay, so, so okay, so right. Uh, yes, so, um... Uh, yeah, so so it's very easy to you know keep keep yourself busy with academic work all the time. I think it has enough data out there, enough you know things going on out there that it's very easy to get sucked into work and you know, keep doing that all the time. But I've I've started appreciate. I I I I think that's you know that's uh, somewhat of a recent phenomenon. I think that really grew during the pandemic. That it's very important to take time out for yourself and you know, do things that are outside of uh, research and you know, the things that you know keep you both. Uh, you know, mentally and physically active. And uh, that I think uh, I started realizing that more and more during the pandemic where you were sort of you know, locked inside this house and not doing much uh, outside of, you know, know, watching TV or, you know, doing whatever is required to uh, uh, doing, doing your research and stuff. Um, and uh, <laughs> the, the thing about biking is that that actually pretty much uh, came out of the pandemic in the sense that I uh, I was you know I think all of us were stuck at home with not much to do and we didn't, you know, I, it, it was the safest option to stay away from people and um, and then you uh, uh, the thing that I realized was that the you know, if you, if I wanted to be outside if I you know really wanted to uh, you know explore uh, you know uh, the, the 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 areas around Pasadena while also not sort of hanging out with people. I think I realized that biking was a really good way to do it, which is that so um, so what I used to do, I think this started really in the middle of the pandemic where you know I was pretty much doing nothing at home. I was like I can't you know do this for uh, I don't know how however long this keeps going. So I need to you know, go outside and start doing stuff. And and uh, that's when I picked up biking. So what I used to do is that I used to, so I, I have this apartment in Pasadena. And then I used to bike from Pasadena to downtown LA, which is actually not too much. So it takes about half an hour, maybe something like 40 minutes or something. And there were a lot of these amazing bike paths in LA. Which I'm, and uh, something that I'm really appreciating and missing right now is how good the weather in LA is <laughs> all the time in the year, which I don't get it here anymore. So it's almost always perfect outside for biking or you know running, if you like. Uh, uh, so uh, so uh, that's that, 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 that because you know, the weather was so good and you know, there were, these uh, uh, bike paths that went from Pasadena to LA. That's what I started doing, uh, and you know, I still just you know, every evening I just you know, finish work, you know, and actually take off for a couple of hours, and you know, go to downtown LA, you know, have some food at some, you know, some restaurant over there, and come back after dinner. So that that started becoming my uh, schedule, and then I think as the as I got better and better at biking, I started doing more adventurous trips. So I would go from Pasadena to Long Beach, which is you know very far in the south. So uh, so either Santa Monica or Long Beach, and I should bike all the way. And uh, it turns out that um, uh, that uh, there are these really nice bike paths that go from 
from uh, sort of uh, close to Pasadena all the way to Long Beach, there's the Los Angeles River. And the Los Angeles River on both sides is, has, has bike paths. And those bike paths, there are no cars on those bike paths, so you don't have to worry about getting hit by a car. And, and then you can just bike you know, for, you know, it takes, I think, probably about, used to take me maybe three hours to get from Pasadena to Long Beach. Uh, that's about, I think, 30 miles or something. Uh, but I, you know, I just enjoyed that part of, you know, the weather was always perfect outside and, you know, I was you know, uh, uh, biking along the things. And that also helped me sort of, I think oh, during that last year when I really picked up this hobby, I saw a lot of places in the LA area that I would not have seen otherwise because, you know, you know why would you go on a bike path if you're not biking? And, uh, and uh, uh, these bike paths actually go through a lot of interesting neighborhoods. There are, you know, um, you know, lots of interesting restaurants that I probably not even realized. I think so, as someone who's lived in LA, I think you probably realize that, you know, LA is like so big, like it's nearly impossible to know the entire, entirety of LA because it's so spread out and so big. And, you know, unless you have a reason to go to a specific neighborhood, you wouldn't actually go there because, you know, it's so big. So I think uh, it, uh, that was a really uh, interesting experience to sort of go to places that I would not have otherwise gone to and, you know, see neighborhoods and, uh, and, 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 you know, just, just navigate the area. Uh, 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 and uh, I think, you know, Pasadena, because it's on the foothills of the, of the mountains, I think uh, the other thing I should like to do is just bike up the mountains, which is, which is a, lot, a lot more grueling because it's hard to bike up a mountain. But by the end of it, I think it's very rewarding because, you know, the, uh, the, the views are really nice. If you, I used to bike from Pasadena in the evenings up to the, you know, somewhere up to the mountain, and then you could see the, the lights of LA from darkness. And that was really nice. Um, That's really impressive. I don't know how to ride a bike, so I can't even imagine going up a mountain, but I'm sure the views and the experiences were worth it. And it's it's really nice to hear that you look back at your time in LA fondly now because of this new hobby that you have. So that's great. Um, but now we're just gonna talk a little bit more about your future. Yes. So ideally, like, what do you want to do? Do you wanna, be like in academia do you want to be a professor or work in industry what would you like your perfect scenario be right uh yes okay <laughs> uh, that's that's a fun question yes so uh so okay so if if everything goes according to the way i would like to like it to go i think I, i'm really looking forward to uh to you know to uh, a career in academia in the sense that you know i would like to uh you know, be in a stage where I can, you know, go eventually go into a, a faculty track position and actually teach students to, to do stuff. I think, you know, based on the, the, the limited number of amazing undergrads I've worked with, including Gokul, I think, you know, there's nothing more uh, uh, rewarding than seeing a you know, student uh, you know, do something and, you know, come up with ideas that you know, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I would have never come up with this idea. Uh, so I think it's been really rewarding to, uh, you know, with that limited experience to, to be able to, uh, you know, mentor students and, uh, uh, and, and teach them to, to do things that, you know, even you, you probably wouldn't have uh, uh, thought of. And I, I'm, I, so, so yes, in the, in the, ideal scenario, I would like to take that forward and sort of, I see that as a, as a very uh, uh, appealing career to me, which is you know, doing research, but not only doing your own research, but also inspiring younger people to you know, do, do research. And you know, uh, you know, initially with your own ideas and then of course, uh, then inspiring them to build their own ideas and then take it forward. So I, I so, so yes, that's, that's sort of the direction that I'm hoping uh, things will uh, um, end up in. 
Yeah, that's amazing. You're definitely on track for that. Um, if there are any faculty watching this, just know Keishley <laughs> would be an amazing person to have in your department. He's going to make your department you. a thousand times better. So just putting that out there. Um, so yeah, so on the topic of mentoring students, you've been a research mentor for quite a few students already. Um, and you're definitely very good at it. Um, so in the future, do you see yourself um, continue to ment continuing to keep mentoring a really important part of your career? Um, especially if, are there any specific groups of people that you sort of want to help guide through the academic sphere um, with regards to like the students that you're mentoring? And I was also wondering what are sort of the strategies you use when mentoring students? Like, what does it take to be a good mentor? Okay, yeah, <laughs> right, yes. So, um, uh, yeah, so I think mentoring, I, I found mentoring students really uh, fun and rewarding in the sense that uh, is uh, that I think, uh, uh, you know, part of the reward of you know, mentoring students is that, you know, the, uh, you, you, I think I've had such, such amazing insights into things that, you know, that, that I wouldn't have thought of, you know, I think, because especially when you, when you mentor students who come from, let's say, different backgrounds, it's like someone might be a major in computer science, someone might be in chemistry or whatever. And, and I think everyone brings in their own unique perspective of, you know, looking at a problem differently from the way I look at it. And I think that's been really rewarding in the sense that, you know, and, uh, I think you know, I, I, I've definitely sort of uh, modified my views of how you know, certain topics because of the way I've heard students talk about it because you know, they, they come with their own perspectives and you know, looking at things and some of, in some of those cases like like I to be like wow okay I, I wouldn't have realized that you know you could, there's actually this connection between this field in that I had obscurely heard of in chemistry and this field you know the stuff that I'm doing so I, I really like uh, uh, that that aspect of being able to sort of make those connections because I'm you know exchanging ideas with someone who's from a completely different background um, so uh, so yes I, I and I, I hope to keep doing that I think that's really been rewarding and I think that uh, uh, that's been a fun experience and I uh, 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 I hope to continue doing that uh, in terms of what's been the correct strategy honestly I'm still figuring it out I'm still early on <laughs> in this process so I don't have any I guess uh, uh, so far I've been taking it on a case-by-case -case basis like I just you know, uh, you know I think it, it varies a lot so from student to student in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, I think initially I'm, you know, I would just like to you know, say, you know, hey, this is what I do. And, you know, this, this is what, this is, you know, there are certain set of basic principles that you can probably start talking with, with any student. And then you sort of see their response and see how they are responding. And in a lot of cases, I think it's very common for uh, uh, anyone to, to try to make connections between what you're learning is new and with what you already know. And I think, uh, I think I try to uh, be, uh, Sort of especially receptive to those connections that they're making, and you know, if I see a student trying to, you know, sort of maybe someone has a good background in signal processing, and and they want to make connections between what I'm doing and signal processing, I would I try to reinforce those connections because I think it's always, uh, you know, I think it's always e easier for anyone to learn a new thing if you see some level of familiarity with the existing topic, and I if I you know I think I think that's at least one of the things that I keep an eye out for, which is that if if I see a student that you know, is, is definitely going into new territory because you know, they've never done astrophysics before, but they're comfortable with sort of thinking of this astrophysics problem as a problem that they already understand. I try to try to make those connections, even though I probably don't understand that particular topic very well, but at least you know, with whatever limited uh, amount of uh, knowledge that I have. Um, and of course, you know, then of course, I think once the basic connections are made, then I think it's it's um, you know then I think you know it's 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 easier to sort of let the student decide you know how to take this problem forward if they like 
approaching this problem in a specific way. You know, you know, just take it with with the 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 specific uh, direction that you're thinking about. And you know, I I'll be there in more of an advisory capacity, saying that hey, you know, you know have you tried this or have you tried that? And you know, and is there is there a connection that we could make or you know, how how could you take this approach that you're using to some the quantifiable results and you know you can do your approach whatever you like you know, whatever you're comfortable with but i think uh, then i think eventually it, it, it becomes more of an advisory role that's good advice i know gopal wants to go into mentoring so i'm sure he'll take that into account especially as he goes through grad school but um now we're unfortunately coming to a close of our interview and we just wanted to end off with some quick hitter questions so i'm gonna go first um could you tell me the three weirdest things you that stood out to you about los angeles okay <laughs> i can probably tell you 30 things <laughs> i think part of that is right is because uh, you know uh, i i noticed a lot of the weird things because that was such a big transition from you know going from india to la okay so let's see Number one, why are the blocks in LA so long? Why does you know you know it's like you know it's like it's it's a it's it's not a very walkable city. Like you always have to be in your car, and that's what most people are doing. So I think that's definitely uh, uh, one thing. Uh, let's see, uh, LA food. I, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a weird thing, but I really uh, enjoyed the diversity of food in LA because I think there's just so many different kinds of cultures living at the same place, and I think that that was really. Uh, 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 interesting. Uh, so it, I wouldn't call it weird, but I think it was really a peculiar thing that uh, I had actually never seen before. Like you know, so many different kinds of restaurants, you know, so many different cuisines at the same place. Um, yes, and third is lack of public transport, uh, which is, which is you know, I, I'm seeing the differences now that I'm in Boston, which is, which is that you know, it's pretty much impossible to go from anywhere to anywhere in LA unless you have a car. And you know, the, there is a train system, but yeah, it hardly connects in any any any. Uh, any of the places you want to go to in LA. So I think uh, uh, many places on the East Coast are somewhat better connected in terms of public transport. Is, uh, and, and, and I hope, you know, I, I don't know if it's heading in that direction, but you know, there's definitely scope for having more public transport in the, in, in the West Coast. Um, yeah, those are, all, those are all really good ones. Um, next one is uh, top five Indian foods. I'm very interested in this one. Okay. <laughs> Okay, uh, right. So, um, so I grew up eating a lot of fish because uh, the people, because uh, 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 West Bengal, which is the state I grew up in, uh, and, and the, so, so my um, uh, native language is this language called Bengali, which is uh, spoken in Bangladesh and eastern part of India. So, I, I like fish a lot. So, uh, let's see. So, uh, fish dishes. So, I uh, I love shrimps, <laughs> uh, and I think anything with shrimps is good. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Indian food. So, okay, so there's a specific kind of shrimp curry that I really like, which is, uh, which involves uh, essentially uh, frying shrimp and then uh, uh, cooking it with uh, uh, yogurt and uh, uh, I think mustard oil. Uh, and this is quite an interesting combination that you can do. Uh, 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 so I, I like, I like that. Then um, of course uh, in chicken, I love chicken. <laughs> and and I, uh, uh, let's see, I, I what, what would be my favorite chicken dish? I think the favorite, my favorite chicken dish would be, uh, I, 
think I like butter chicken. I, I, I think many of you would have <laughs> had butter chicken. I think butter chicken is delicious. Uh, it's not the most healthy food, but it's delicious. Uh, uh, so I and let's see, third would be um, so okay. I don't know what's it called, but uh, there's this dish called puri in uh, uh, in uh, uh, in India, which is actually uh, uh, fried. Uh, okay, I don't know. Goku, was it? Is there an is there an uh, like an English of puri? I don't know what it's called. It's probably just puri. <laughs> Uh, it's probably like, uh-huh. it's like, it's kind of like a crepe, I guess. It's like fried. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> crepe, yes. Yes. Okay. So I, I love puris. Uh, yes. Uh, biryani. I'm an absolute biryani monster. Like I love biryani. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, so sweet dish. I have to mention sweet dish because I, I love sweets. Uh, so uh, Swedish, so I really like gulab jamun. Like gulab jamun has been my, you know, all-time favorite. I, uh, I, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. So, so gulab jamun and probably there's this Indian ice cream called kulfi that I really like. Uh, so uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's like more pistachio flavored, but it's amazing. That that's been you know just my favorite desserts. I think you got all the most important ones in that list. <laughs> Uh-huh. pretty solid uh-huh. so um the next quick hitter is is there a new survey like gatini or ztf um mm-hmm. a new upcoming one that you would want to be a part of oh yeah of course yeah so many uh yes <laughs> i think uh in the next five years right i think astronomy is really heading in this direction there's just so many surveys coming online and all of them are unique and have their own amazing data sets so i think uh, i have I probably you know in the next couple of years i think the rubin observatory which is going to do uh the, the legacy survey of space and time. I think that's really going to change our view of the universe. And I think I, I'm really excited about what Rubin does. And uh, it's not going. It's it's going to be, it's going to be primarily in the optical, but it's also going to have some near infrared coverage, which I'm really excited about. And um, then maybe I think a few years down the line there'll be the Roman Space Telescope, which is uh, again going to uh, essentially going to be the Hubble Space Telescope with a field of, with a with a with a field of view that's hundred times larger than the Hubble Space Telescope. So imagine not only getting these individual galaxies, but you know, you know many many galaxies at the same time in, in, inside the field of view. So I'm really excited about that. So those are the I think you know two big survey instruments that I'm really excited about, and there are a lot of individual projects that are uh, happening over the next five years. Uh, that I think you know, these are mostly smaller telescopes with with a very focused instruments. But you know, to name a few, there are, you know, uh, the ZTF is obviously keep, uh, is, is still running, and I hope to be able to use some of that data uh, in in uh, going into the future. And there are a bunch of these near infrared surveys that are coming online again from the ground at various places on the planet: Australia, South Africa, Chile, and so on. And uh, yeah, I think there's a really exciting time uh, coming up in the next decade for time domain astronomy. Yeah, so kind of kind of continuing on that note, um, what are your top five favorite astronomical <coughs> objects? Oh boy, okay, that's a hard one. Uh, okay, uh, top five favorite astronomical objects. So okay, so I think uh, something that I've learned is that a lot of the times the 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 nearest one of any kind of object is is always uh, what the, the is is tends to be the one that teaches you the most about that object. Uh, and so maybe I can tell you the five nearest ones of, uh, of the kinds of objects that I like. Uh, so let's see, the nearest black hole, I think the nearest uh, undisputed black hole, there are some other claims, but the nearest undisputed black holes is actually in, in a system where you have a, 
companion that's interacting with the black hole in this thing called an extra binary. So I think that's this system called AO620 minus tub 00 or something, which is a, an, uh, which was discovered in the X-rays many, many years ago. Uh, so that's, I think, is the still uh, the, the closest undisputed black hole. Uh, let's see, the nearest neutron star is this object called, it's a phone number, RXXJ18 something. And it's, it's one of these uh, neutron stars which were discovered back in the 90s by the survey called ROSAT. Uh, so, uh, uh, so yes, that the nearest binary, the nearest multiple star system is actually, the nearest stars to our sun is actually a multiple star system. It's the Proxima Centauri and the two Alpha Centauris. Those that, that's, yeah, I mean, as you would guess, if binary stars are common, the nearest star that we know of is actually a binary star system. So, uh, so that's the nearest binary star. Uh, the nearest supernova, I think, yeah, it depends. It's a bit, depends a bit on what time period you're considering. Like there are probably, some uh, claims of a supernova going off in M31, which is Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearest galaxy uh, going off um, in back in the, uh, you know, I can't remember the name, but but I think the nearest supernova in modern history is 1987A, which went off in the Magellanic clouds. Uh, uh, and let's see, what, what other type of object do I think about? Um, uh, let's see, I covered, ah, the nearest white dwarf. That's actually a good question. What is the nearest white dwarf? Uh, I have to look this up, I forget. Anyway, I, have to, I guess, anyway, whatever the nearest white dwarf is, yes. Um. Cool, yeah, that's definitely not what I expected to hear from that answer, but that's a cool way of thinking about it, because I guess uh -huh. it is true the nearest things do tell us the most about the universe. Uh, hopefully we get a supernova in our galaxy <laughs> during, during our lifetimes. That would be, yes. be a and cool Virginia project. will be the best place instrument to find it because it will be buried in the dust. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That would be yeah. that would make Gatini very famous. That would be really cool. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we are out of time, but thanks, Kishlay. That was amazing. We really appreciate having you on as our first postdoc. And I learned a lot <laughs> just in this hour of talking. Um, and I'm excited to keep on working with you in the future and to look at all the amazing science that you do. No, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, these questions are very interesting. Like, they really, really made me think about, about what what my experience was, uh, you know, back as, as a grad student. I think I think you know, you always sort of, you know, I think as a grad student, you're always trying to, you know, just survive and make, make sure that you know your 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 grad school is hard. So, you know, but I think uh, it's it's good to reflect on some of those things. And I think some of those questions about science, especially, I think, uh, you know, trying to explain astronomy to someone who's who's obviously who, who's uh, who doesn't have the background in astronomy, I think that's one of the most fun experiences because I think astronomy is one of those rare fields that I think intrigues almost everyone. Like everyone's looked at the sky and thought, you know, what, what is up there? And I think it's really uh, uh, fascinating to sort of uh, uh, try to uh, uh, think of astronomy in, 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 in sort of the broader picture of what it means. Yeah, I, I never would have thought someone could compare the Joker to astronomy. So that was a really interesting way of how you explain things and it really goes through nice so i think that you are a great mentor i already learned a lot and i really appreciate you coming on it was so nice meeting you finally um Goku always talks about you very highly so <laughs> you really delivered <laughs> thank you so much yeah, yeah and I, thanks thanks for doing this series i think this is great i think uh, you know i think it's very important to you know let uh, everyone know about you know sort of the diverse backgrounds that uh, that people come from and how you know everybody has their own experience and especially like if you uh, uh, you know uh, it's it's important to uh, sort of 
highlight the, the different experiences that people bring in into this field and how that those different experiences sort of make this field so much richer than uh, uh, than, than what would be possible otherwise. Definitely, yeah, that's an amazing way to put it and a great way to end. So yes. thanks, Kishfoy, appreciate yes. it. All right. Thank, Thank you. you.